2017 was another year packed full of interesting stories of research and discoveries through translational science. And every month, CTSI Discovery Radio brought them to you. We learned about a public health crisis that's claiming lives in our community. The risks associated with prescription opioids is affecting everyone. And a project helping bring new lives into the community. The adage of healthy mom, healthy baby really does stand true. So really what we're doing is to extend psychiatry services in this perinatal population. We heard about impactful outcomes. I have a good life. My quality of life is awesome and I try my best to make sure that I do not take that for granted. It's an incredible gift. Impactful innovations. They said, look, can we replicate veteran peer-to-peer support so that we can do some of this outreach using smartphones, for example. And research on, well, impacts. A large majority of people who die in car crashes are unbelted. The people that are belted, they have a much lower risk. It's our special 2017 Year in Review. Inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. We began our year back in January with an amazing story of organ regeneration. When a team of doctors needed to fix a critically ill patient's badly damaged esophagus, they discovered it was beyond repair by standard practice. Dr. Colwinder Dua and his cohorts had to think outside the box to come up with a viable solution. Dr. Dua is professor of gastroenterology and hepatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin and section chief of the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at the Zablocki VA Medical Center. Dr. Dua and and his team published a paper of their findings in the renowned medical journal, The Lancet, detailing their landmark work in regenerating an esophagus inside the patient. We heard the entire amazing story of how it happened from Dr. Dua himself. We said, okay, you know what, it looks normal. Let's see if it works. So we did typical peristaltic motility studies that we do in patients where we looked at how the esophagus contracts. So we also did that study the same day and we found that it was even functioning the way a normal esophagus should function. A little bit weak contractions at the junction of the new esophagus and the old one, but the proof of the pudding was that he was eating, not choking, not coughing. So all these studies that we did basically was for us to know what's going on here. I mean, how did this happen? And for his leadership in this team science approach to patient care, Dr. Dua was presented the CTSI's Dean's Award in Translational Science. Next, we explored one of the largest, most widespread public health crises our country and our community has ever faced. The incidence rate of heroin and prescription opioid abuse and related deaths has reached epidemic proportions. So in February, we learned about some collaborative efforts to battle our community's opioid abuse crisis. 
Dr. E. Brooke Lerner is professor of emergency medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She and her cohorts joined forces with the City of Milwaukee and the Zilber Family Foundation to form the Milwaukee Community Opioid Prevention Effort, or COPE, a project providing data that will hopefully lead to solutions to the opioid epidemic. But she knows that they have their work cut out for them. We have to understand who's overdosing, how to get people who are addicted to treatment, get them to a point where they're not at risk of overdose death. We need to understand how people become recreational users, what makes it so attractive to use such a dangerous drug, how to keep people from trying it so that they don't become addicted. The thing is, it's complicated. To say the least, she told us what's known about the scope of this epidemic in our community compared to others. We definitely are up there with other state, county, or city level that are experiencing an extreme crisis. We're seeing a lot of deaths, but we're seeing a lot of overdoses, secondary infections that affect our medical community. I anecdotally was told that the numbers of deaths are rising so much that some of the medical examiner's offices can't do the autopsies fast enough. There's really no one that isn't somehow touched by this. And though the epidemic continues, Dr. Lerner is confident that efforts like Milwaukee Cope can make a difference. People have realized with crack we did it not quite right and that we can do it better this time. We really need to make sure what's making heroin attractive is being addressed and keeping people from starving. We also are starting to work with those who have addiction, recognizing it not as failing, but as an actual disease. It's unfortunately going to be a while because it's going to be the things that you can't see that have to change first to really see the lowering of the numbers of people who overdose and who die. We also heard from Dr. Robert Hurley, former medical director of the Medical College of Wisconsin Pain Management Center and an integral part of the Dose of Reality campaign in Wisconsin. He shared Dose of Reality's message. The overall message is to help people in the public understand the risks associated with prescription opioids, the dangers of leftover prescriptions from our own medicine cabinets. The campaign is designed to educate patients. Patients need to own their own medical health. You have to be an informed consumer and ask what are the benefits and what are the side effects and what actually is this medicine. Medication. And that would apply to any medication, but specifically opioids. Educate families. Things you should look for in your child, your husband, your wife, your mother, father. If they are acting differently after they received these medications, these are things that you should worry about. And these are signs of inappropriate use of a medication. And educate the whole spectrum of people affected by the opioid epidemic. It's often more helpful if many people are discussing the issues and coming at the issue from very different perspectives. Trying to educate people that are 70 years and older is probably not going to be the same as the educational strategy you would take with the millennial generation or younger. This is not something that is affecting one single population or one single age group. Statistically, it is affecting 20 to 40 year old white males more than it is affecting other groups. That being said, it's affecting everybody across the age range, across multiple races, across multiple ethnicities, and across socioeconomic status. And that's what makes this public health crisis different than many of the others in the past. Our March show focused on the findings from two different research studies, each related to eating. 
The first was conducted by Dr. James Esteban, a fellow in the Medical College of Wisconsin's Department of Gastroenterology and Hepatology. His research points to increased risk for the development of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, based not just on what we eat, but also when and how often we eat. We have to be cognizant of the fact that our body has developed a particular rhythm for behaviors and processes, and we have to think of ways to minimize disrupting that because as emerging data shows, going against that normal rhythm may have deleterious effects to one's health and it's really a matter of figuring out what these effects truly are. The second study was led by Dr. Michelle Polfis, Assistant Professor, College of Nursing at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. My interest area is obesity research and I have a particular interest in children with special needs and we often hear about obesity in our nation but we don't hear that children with special needs have a higher prevalence and if you want to intervene you have to know the basics so energy in and energy out which is a very oversimplified look at obesity but that is a foundation that you need to know. So I chose to focus first of all on energy going out in the form of activity and how do we measure it so we can use it for research and use it in the clinic and having parents know what their children are doing and how the activity works for them. She enlisted the help of Andrea Moosreiner, program manager of the Bionutrition and Body Composition Lab in the CTSI's Translational Research Unit to work with special needs kids through the innovative use of technology. Dr. Polfus and I met with the participant and their parents and we showed them how to use the technology we were giving them. So the iPad minis that had the special application downloaded onto them to record their meals and we showed them how to FaceTime. We found out quickly all kids know how to FaceTime, so that part was easy. Learn more by checking out the podcast of our March show. April is National Donate Life Month, focusing on encouraging Americans to register as donors of organs, eyes, and tissue, and to celebrate those who have given the gift of life through donation. On our April show, we had the special opportunity to hear from a man in our community who suffered from an incurable kidney disease, which led to his eventual need for a kidney transplant. I could feel myself getting worse. I ended up going into the hospital two months after I got married, and then the last 10 or 11% of my function went pretty darn quick. We heard how a matching donor was found. The word got around. I started having people asking what they needed to do to step up and donate a kidney. So many people inquiring about donation of their own kidney, and I actually had five people fill out the paperwork and start the process, filtering down to one person who was actually a match for me. And we met that match, a woman who selflessly gave her friend a healthy kidney. Mike just didn't look well, you know, had to inquire. I said, hey, you don't look good. What's going on? And he said, yeah, having some trouble. We're talking about my situation because that always comes up. And she said, well, well if you ever need a kidney, let me know. And I said, well, hey, I might take you up on that, you know, and it turns out she was a perfect match. Never thought much about it until the day they sought me out. She also gave him the gift of new life. My quality of life is awesome, and I try my best to make sure that Mary Kay knows too that I do not take that for granted. It's an incredible incredible gift that I can never, ever thank her enough for, but I still thank her every day for it. <laughs> I'm glad he's healthy. That's all that matters. That's thanks enough. And they agree that organ donation, in this case kidney donation, is doable, and it's the right thing to do. In short, everyone has two. You can get by with one. You can live a perfectly functional life with one kidney. You know, there's a reason we have two, and there's a reason that they're shareable. <laughs> 
It seems inevitable that at some point every child gets hurt, resulting in acute pain that needs to be assessed, treated, and managed. Whether by a healthcare professional in an emergency department of a hospital, by parents at home, or both. Dr. Amy Drendel is a pediatric emergency medicine specialist at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. In May, we learned from her that there are challenges in assessing, treating, and managing pain, especially when it comes to kids. In general, kids' pain is much less understood. It's more underreported, probably not as well treated as the adult counterparts, especially in the emergency medicine perspective. There's people that specialize in pain now, both in the adult and the pediatric world, and they have really moved the science forward as to what the best assessment and treatment plans are for patients of all types. So in order to better facilitate pediatric pain assessment, treatment, and management, she put her experience and research to work in developing her own tool. It's called the Stoplight Pain Scale, and Dr. Drendel shared where the stoplight concept came from. I have a cousin who is a third grade teacher, and she recommended the stoplight approach using the colors because that's very familiar to children even down to the very young ages. It's something that's familiar to families. So I thought the three points with the three colors also allowed for us to be able to verbally talk about pain assessment, especially for those kids that use the FACES pain scale without having that scale tattooed to your body. You really can't use it in the at-home setting. To be able to talk about your experiences, red, yellow, or green, would offer that verbal communication as well. Dr. Drendel also worked with designers in creating a Comic book of discharge instructions, stressing three main points for child patients and their parents. Injuries like broken bones may hurt for a while once you go home. Talk to your parents if anything hurts you, and parents can give you pain medication that can help you to feel better. Learn more about her innovative tools by listening to the podcast of our May show. Most people know that wearing a safety belt as part of the restraint system in a vehicle can reduce our risk for injury in the event of a crash. Yet Wisconsin still ranks well below the national average for people wearing them. How real are the risks and potential consequences of not wearing the seat belts in our vehicles? We didn't have to travel far to find out from an expert. Dr. Frank Pintar is director of the Medical College of Wisconsin's Vehicle Crash Worthiness Lab and Neurosurgery Research Facility. We spoke with him in June to explore the impactful research he and his cohorts are conducting at these two state-of-the-art crash labs. He says that while there's many crash labs across the country, labs exactly like the ones in our community are rare. Crash labs are either in manufacturing settings or in other private lab facilities. All the major manufacturers have them, and then there's probably five or six other independent labs that have them, and those are all for-profit labs. But we're one of only two that exists in academic settings. So along with the VCL and the NRF together, that is a very unique combination of laboratory space. Making research done in those labs have a direct influence on the design of many safety features in vehicles today. Any of the occupant restraint systems we have influenced. Those are the satisfying things that I know occur. We don't do the design itself, but we influence the design because of our research. Andy said those dummies they use can make us a lot smarter. When people see the dummies that go through that, we often see their eyes widening. Wow, does that really happen? 
And they usually ask, what was this crash speed? And I said, well, 30 miles per hour. What? So I can only tell you that a large majority of the people who die in car crashes are unbelted. The people that are belted, they have a much lower risk. So wear your seatbelt. With all of the possible complications a woman might experience during or following a pregnancy, the most common one is depression. Compounding perinatal and postpartum behavioral issues and addiction disorders in women is the fact that care providers often suspend antidepressant or other medications for pregnant or breastfeeding women out of concern for the mother and her baby. But continuing that treatment might be what the mother needs most, when she needs it most, to ensure a healthy birth outcome. Back in July, a new provider-to-provider initiative was launched, aimed at offering perinatal psychiatric expertise and resources in treating women with behavioral health or addiction issues who are or plan to become pregnant. It's called the Periscope Project, and Dr. Christina Wickman is its medical director. The majority of women are advised to stop their medications when they learn about conception or preconception if they're planning a pregnancy. And that's really because of the perceived lack of data with the use of psychiatric medications. I say perceived because there is actually quite a bit of evidence with use of certain classes of psychiatric medications in pregnancies, primarily the antidepressants and some anxiety medications. We actually have quite a repertoire of information about their safety profile with use in pregnancy. And so what it really comes down to, it's the potential risks of these medications and the known risks we have. And we have to balance those against the risks of having an untreated psychiatric disorder in pregnancy, of which, again, we know quite a bit about the potential risks of untreated psychiatric disorders as well. Periscope is an acronym for Perinatal Specialty Consult Psychiatry Extension. So really what we're doing is to extend psychiatry services in this perinatal population. Learn all about the Periscope Project when you listen to the podcast of our July show. With over 2 million military service personnel deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq since 2001, there's been a sharp increase in the sheer number of military veterans diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Dr. Zeno Franco is Assistant Professor of Family and Community Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin and a key member of the CTSI's Community Engagement Module. He has spent the majority of his career working with U.S. military veterans, and he's currently leading a project to develop an innovative mobile health support system app for smartphones as an effective early intervention for mental health crises among veterans. We caught up with Dr. Franco in August to learn more about the app he and his team are developing. As these younger veterans were coming back, we realized that a lot of them are sort of technology focused and we weren't really in that space. The care providers are sort of thinking about traditional face-to-face therapy. A lot of these young veterans that are coming back are trying to restart their life. They're trying to go back to school. They're trying to deal with a job and they would prefer to interact with some sort of therapeutic care using technology instead of face-to-face interaction. It's a project that combines research with community, in this case, an organization called Dry Hooch. They said, look, can we replicate what we're doing, which is veteran peer-to-peer support. So they said, can we take that one-on-one program between veterans and can we move that into the digital world a little bit so that we can do some of this outreach using smartphones, for example. And in true CTSI form, it's a collaborative partnership between institutions. And that partnership involves a number of CTSI partners. 
UW-Milwaukee is part of it, the VA. And Marquette has also been at the wheel in terms of developing the technology. As for Dr. Zeno Franco, he says that doing research to help veterans is more than his profession. It's his purpose. We owe a debt to the folks that have gone overseas. Part of that is trying to figure out how can we pick them up and put them back where they need to be. That's why I come to work every day. In September, we kept our focus on technology, specifically the process of turning ideas into inventions, and then marketing them and creating commercial products or concepts that benefit people of our community and people worldwide. In learning about advancing inventions and intellectual property, we spoke with Dr. Eddie Deal, Intellectual Property Marketing Manager, who explained the mission of the Office of Technology Development at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Our mission is to help MCW faculty, staff, and students turn ideas into products that will help patients. Um, the OTD logo includes the phrase, patents to patients, and that's what we do. Our inventors take their technologies as far as they can with the funding sources available, and our office finds a partner outside MCW to use their skills and capital to turn technologies into products. What types of industries does the Office of Technology Development help transfer technology assets to? We try to license technologies to the pharmaceutical industry and to a lesser extent biotechnology companies. Our technologies are all early stage, so we have to find partners who have not only the knowledge, but also the wherewithal to develop biomedical products, and they have to be able to accept the financial risk. We also got a preview of an important and influential national conference of the Small Business Innovation Research and the Small Business Technology Transfer Programs being hosted right here in Milwaukee by the MCW Office of Technology Development and the CTSI. Dr. Kalpa Vithalani is Licensing Manager with the OTD. She shared some of the highlights of the conference. One of the most exciting things that will happen at the conference is that the National Institutes of Health is flying up to 100 SBIR and STTR program managers and directors from Washington, D.C. Anybody who goes to the conference will have the amazing advantage of being able to meet one-on-one with all of these program managers and directors throughout the three-day conference. So that's one very big advantage of attending in person. And she told us the technology landscape in southeast Wisconsin made it the perfect venue for hosting the conference. Over the last decade or more, we here in southeast Wisconsin have built a very robust entrepreneurial ecosystem. There's a constant supply of innovative ideas at all of our educational institutes and certainly from community innovators. NIH has recognized this, and they're bringing this conference to our state, and we're bringing it to Milwaukee. And the conference was a huge success when it was held in November, featuring many prominent speakers, including a keynote speech from former Wisconsin Governor and Health and Human Services Secretary Tommy Thompson, who gave props to the CTSI for its role. When it comes to the exchange of ideas, the combining of forces, and the ability to recognize opportunities, the do-it-alone attitude really hurts. What does the CTSI do? It is a consortium of eight regional organizations whose mission is to advance the health of the community through research and discovery. From the Blood Center of Wisconsin to the MCW and everyone in between, including the VA, Marquette, Milwaukee School of Engineering, UW-Milwaukee, Freighter Hospital, this uniquely composed consortium is designed to deliver good health-related ideas 
in the borderless manner as possible to the public. Learn more about the Office of Technology Development and the SBIR-STTR conference by listening to the podcast of our September show. With October being designated Liver Awareness Month, we showed some love for our liver by focusing on liver health with American Liver Foundation CEO Tom Nealon. You cannot live without a liver. Once the liver shuts down, people are incapable of being revived. So it's a vitally important organ that is our key to life each day. We learned about a rare liver disease from Dr. Nicholas LaRusso at Mayo Clinic. Primary sclerosing cholangitis is a rare disease. It's often diagnosed in asymptomatic patients and the cause is unclear. The good news is, and this is what I tell my patients, there is a potential effective treatment for this disease. Bottom line, liver transplantation is an effective treatment. We learned about liver transplant too from Dr. Christopher Hughes at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Most of the transplants are going to be from people who've died and donated their organs. Only a small percentage come from living donors. But for living donation, taking half of a liver for an adult works very well. And we heard the story of someone who suffered from liver disease and went through a liver transplant. You could see that my liver was in really bad shape. And at that point, he immediately looked at me and he said, are you opposed to a liver transplant? And I just said, well, if that's my only option, he said, that's your only option. Hear his whole story in the October podcast of our show. Last month, we wrapped up this year of shows by focusing on a statewide and national research study you can expect to hear a lot about throughout 2018 and for years to come. It's called the All of Us Wisconsin Research Program, and it's part of the National All of Us Program designed to accelerate progress toward the success of the Precision Medicine Initiative, the ambitious medical research effort that's revolutionizing how we improve health and treat disease. The All of Us Wisconsin Research Program is a collaboration of three institutions here in Wisconsin, Marshfield Clinic, the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, and the Medical College of Wisconsin. Along with the Blood Center of Wisconsin as a partner, the group's been awarded a $5.3 million NIH grant to launch All of Us Wisconsin. Together, they'll use their collective resources to enroll people throughout our state in helping the NIH reach its goal of gathering health data from more than 1 million people nationwide. Dr. Murray Brilliant is director of the Marshfield Clinic Research Institute Center for Human Genetics. He explained how the collaboration of the three institutions is a natural fit, based on other NIH grants they already have in common. We came together through our combined CTSA grants, which are grants from the NIH to promote our technology development and translational medicine capacity. The Marshfield Clinic Research Institute and the University of Wisconsin have a joint grant which funds the Institute for Clinical and Translational Research and Medical College of Wisconsin has the CTSI. Dr. Jeffrey Whittle is professor of medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin and also a principal investigator for All of Us Wisconsin. He explained what participation in the research program will look like. All of Us is set up to allow people to have different degrees of participation. A full participant will be somebody who allows the All of Us program to access their electronic health records. They will provide some information about their background, a survey about health habits, uh, family history, prior medical problems. They'll also provide samples of blood and urine so that we can identify what their genetic material looks like. And then urine provides some opportunity to identify exposures that 
might be in the environment that you're around. Dr. Gil White is Executive VP for Research at Blood Center of Wisconsin and co-investigator of the study. He shared that critical to the success of the program is participation reflecting the diversity of our state and our country. It is intended to mirror the whole country. Whenever you do a study, you want the population that you study to be representative of the larger population to which the results of the study are going to be interpolated. Dr. Brilliant agrees. Our goal is to recruit the vast diversity that is present in the state of Wisconsin from our very rural communities to our very urban communities, including those people who have been underrepresented by medical research. We'll continue bringing you updates regarding All of Us Wisconsin on future shows. We hope you'll consider participating because it's that important for all of us. All of Us is the most important opportunity for Americans to find out the correct role for genomics in tailoring medicine to individual people's needs. After all, it's the future. We'll continue bringing you updates on future shows. But now, we've reached the end of this special year-in-review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio and the end of 2017. This is the point of our show where we usually thank our interview guests. But today, we want to thank you, our listeners, for supporting CTSI Discovery Radio throughout 2017 and beyond. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show. And I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again throughout 2018 as we bring you another year of interesting shows featuring topics that cover the latest in translational science discoveries and successful outcomes. Throughout 2018, CTSI Discovery Radio will continue to air the third Friday of every month. So make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you warm, safe holidays and a happy, healthy new year. For more information about research, events like our monthly science cafes, or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. While you're there, sign up as a community member. We need your help to advance clinical and translational team science and improve the health of our community and people worldwide. And remember to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSC Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.